Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. You know, we've done other shows like this, and my goal is to reach a place where we never have to do this show again. I really, I really want to be there, but I feel we're moving the, in the opposite direction. And what I mean by that is that this is going to be a show uh, uh, about uh, Muslims. It's going to be about uh, a show about the fact that Muslims want the same peaceful life that you want. Um, it's going to be a show about the fact that uh, it's a mistake to associate people who are involved in acts of political terror and political violence uh, with the averaging, average practicing Muslim, wherever it is that you live, whether it's here or in Europe. I just feel like I shouldn't need to say any of this stuff anymore. But it, it, turns, it seems as though if you read the trends, if you see the developments around the world, that we need to say it even more. So that's what we're going to do. Um, and we are privileged to have with us uh, in, here in the studio, he's been here before, Dr. Reza Mansour, uh, the founding president of the Muslim Coalition of Connecticut, the president of the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford. Uh, he's also a trustee of the Hartford Seminary, a cardiologist at Hartford Hospital. Uh, joining us uh, from the studios of NPR in Midtown Manhattan is Mustafa Bayoumi. He is a professor of English uh, at uh, Brooklyn College. College, City University of New York, and the author of several books, including most recently, the very fascinating uh, This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror, which I've been reading all day and uh, am blown away by in various ways, although I don't agree with every single little thing in it, so that'll be, uh, it'll be fun. Anyway, he's joining us uh, from the studios. Uh, we're going to talk, um, uh, obviously, we, we probably would have done this show even without Paris, but Obviously, Paris has kind of changed things and accelerated certain trends and exacerbated other ones. So uh, we'll, we're live here in the afternoon. We welcome your phone calls, 860-275-7266. Probably even easier for us to get your tweets, at WNPR. Colin, um, we have a lot of stuff that we want to talk about. And I'll tell you the other thing that I'm going to do later in the show. So I get emails all the time. And... Um, some of the emails that I get uh, are, uh, well, for example, on Monday we talked about the unfortunate case in, in Yukon where somebody uh, wrote something uh, on the door of a Muslim student there in, in connection to Paris. And so I got a very interesting email, I mean, not a very nice email, uh, in response to that. I'm going to read some emails to our guests and, and some things from recent columns and just get them to react. I mean, I think that's sort of maybe a way to do this. Uh, but anyway, that's coming up later. I want to begin uh, with... Um, was something that you, um, uh, Mustafa Bayoumi, say uh, in the book. Um, one thing that you say is that Islamophobia uh, in the post-9-11 world um, has not only accelerated but changed. The very nature of it is different from what it might have been before that. Explain wh how you mean that. Oh, well, uh, good afternoon, Colin. It's great to be on your show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I think, uh, it, well, certainly the scale of things has changed. Um, you know, I think that there's, uh, uh, there, there have been uh, stereotypes, stereotypical ideas, notions about Muslims and uh, in the Middle East and different parts of the Muslim world for a very long time. Uh, but certainly right after 9-11, I think that what's happened, particularly in the American imagination, is that there's a real idea that there's a threat now that's within the country rather than overseas. When we thought about um, you know, questions around Muslims and Islam in the United States uh, beforehand, either we thought about, I, I think most Americans before 9-11 perhaps would have thought about somebody like Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X and would have thought about Muslims within a kind of African-American tradition. And after 9-11... Uh, if they thought about Muslims, they, they started to think perhaps about people like Osama bin Laden. And I think that trajectory itself is, is actually a really, a really tragic one. You know, it's basically one that's gone from liberation to fascism in a sense. Um, 
and and so I think that you know it's important to recognize the ways in which the, um, the not just the uh, the amount of Islamophobia has changed, but also the character of it, and it's it, it is really plays out on the bodies of Muslims in the in this country now. Um, Dr. Reza Mansour, I'm going to invoke what I call the Ken Jennings rule, and that's not the guy from Jeopardy, but uh, for three of my four years in college, my roommate was a guy named Ken Jennings, who's both African American and left-handed. I'm left-handed and white. And so um, every once in a while these days I'll say to Ken, well, did, was this a problem? Did it bother you? Um, and his about something that happened at Yale uh, that had to do with race. And he'd say, you know, Colin, being black is a lot like being left-handed. If you're left-handed, you notice a lot of things that don't work very well for, for left-handed people. And if you're not left-handed, it just never occurs to you that ladles or doorknobs or whatever, whatever's bothering you, it just wouldn't occur to you to think about that at all. He goes, and that's kind of the way it is being black. And I'm assuming it's also kind of the way it is being Muslim. So let me tell you my, you know, my sort of blinkered narrative sort of of the last 14 years. And then you can sort of tell me how it seems to you. It seemed to me that obviously post 9-11 and for first six months in particular, there was just a wash of anti-Muslim activity and Islamophobia just ratcheting up sky high. And that that was followed. And it's very well documented uh, in um, Mustafa Bayoumi's book. Uh, a, a lot of government activities, uh, many of which stayed in place much longer than we had realized. And we'll talk about those, uh, some of those as we go along in the show. Uh, a lot of government activities that were really targeting Muslims. But that that maybe, you know, I don't know, over the last four to five years that that had tailed off a little bit, that there's maybe some kind of softening, some kind of, that the fact that we had this supercharged dialogue about uh, about Islam in, in America uh, maybe got people talking a little bit in general, uh, pushed some people to the fore that we hadn't met or seen before, uh, and, and there was some good that came out of it, and that maybe we're in a better place uh, on this day, or we would be, not if not for Paris. Uh, let's say we were in a better place on September 11th of this year uh, than we were on September 12th uh, of 2001. Well, I mean, that's certainly true, but, but so how wrong am I about this? I mean, how much did things improve say, over the last four or five years, and how much didn't they? Yeah, um, It's a very good, good question, Colin, and thank you again for having me as well. Um, so if you look at the numbers, Colin, uh, soon after 9-11, on November, uh, in November of, 19, uh, of 2001, a Newsweek poll came out showing that Islamophobia or fear of Islam was at 17%. Now, this is two months after 9-11. Ten years later, that number went up to 40%. It's around 45% now. So there is a palpable fear of Islam, and it's being driven partly by some of the things we've done, the color coding system, all of this soon after 9-11, but the wars that happened against Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq and painting you know, the Afghani Iraqis as Muslims, but also as the, uh, as the people to fear, automatically that becomes Islam as the, as the problem. So, yes, the dialogue has been important. And I think in the Northeast, uh, especially in Connecticut, I feel we've made some strides. But the national uh, dialogue hasn't gotten as far as we'd like it to be. And so the numbers are going the wrong way. And I think that's why we need to do more of these shows. Because, as you said at the beginning, these are political conflicts. You know, ISIS grew out of the political instability of Iraq and then Syria. And they're kind of a Sunni wing of, uh, of a terrorist organization fighting a Shia government in Iraq and in, in Syria. And unfortunately, people associate that completely with Islam, partly because they've abused the name Islam uh, for, their, for their own organization. Well, Glenn Greenwald did a great uh, piece about this. He said, like, every time they catch a terrorist, um, 
uh, they say, well, what are you doing this for? And he says, I don't like your policies in the Middle East. And then we say, he's a, an Islamic fundamentalist. <laughs> and it's going, well, no. What he actually, the first thing he said was, I don't like your policies in the Middle East. And somehow that gets translated that way. Okay. But um, Mustafa Bayoumi, you know, in response to, to the numbers uh, that uh, Dr. Mansour just put out there, um, to me, the most fascinating section of your book is the fourth and final one, where you, you talk about culture. And, and it's an, an area where I struggled a little bit with some of your arguments. But undeniably, culture, pop culture, has reinforced some of these tendencies. If we went from 17 to 45 percent Islamophobia, I think you would argue very persuasively that a lot of that is that we began because, in fact, people develop popular culture based on what's on the minds of people and, and then just turn it up to, to 13 on the volume dial. Americans have, have ingested a lot of culture that preys on exactly the kind of fears that you were talking about. You, you want to comment on that a little bit more, flesh that out for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think that's true. I think that if we looked at popular television shows, for example, like Twenty Four from a few years ago, or Homeland, uh, that's you know basically running uh, for the last few years, we see the same sort of uh, um, notions that present, are presented over and over again. And it's essentially that Muslims are to be feared, that their daily lives are basically uh, lies, that they're you know they're they're all working. Um, it with a with a, an agenda to essentially usurp the United States and and produce mayhem and all these sorts of things, like if you th- I think Homeland is a really good example. Like you know if in the first couple of seasons of Homeland uh, that I've watched, every Muslim in the show is basically at some point. Um, uh, a, a terrorist in waiting. A te- you know, there's very there's um, there's really no regard for average ordinary Muslim life in these shows. And you know, I think I think that's probably that's a real problem with a lot of um, Hollywood culture in general. We don't get a lot of inner inner life for uh, non mainstream uh, characters. But with the Muslim community these days, it, it plays out particularly because it, it it has such a resonance with um, you know the, the sort of temperature of the of the of the society uh, and the way that the politicians also actually are invoking Islamophobia as a way of uh, shoring up their support and these sorts of things. So I think they all they all work really carefully together. And um, and Muslims who are a very small population in this country, you know, uh, are easily then uh, essentially stereotyped and, and reproduced as these stereotypes with very little opportunities for them to speak back to them. Um, let me. This is what this is one of the areas where I was really fascinated by your argument and and agreed with it like eighty five percent of it. But but the final fifteen would be. Well, no, I mean, I don't even disagree, but I want to hear your thoughts about this. So, uh, okay, 24 is, is indefensible. We're not going to have a conversation about 24. <laughs> but so I think if the major makers of Homeland were here, what they'd say is, well, no. I mean, we really also try to point out how U.S. policies create some of these situations. So, I mean, you point out in the book, in the first season, you know, a lot of the uh, plot has to do with the radicalization of an American soldier because he sees a, a, a little boy, a little Muslim boy killed by a uh, presumably U.S. drone strike. And, and you see that in other seasons, U.S. policy really screwing up, killing the wrong people, getting letting, you know, bad people get away. And I know you've got a whole a very interesting sort of good Muslim, bad Muslim argument in your cultural section. But so but I think people, the people from Homeland would say, no, well, we're trying to do this with nuance. We're trying to show that, in fact, we made our own bed, just as in uh, Argo. You know, I think I, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I think at the beginning, uh, Ben Affleck or whoever has this kind of kind of 
primer almost on how U.S. policies created the situation that is now going to have to be addressed in this movie. That that some of these so, some of these works of popular culture at least make a feint. Maybe it's not a full step uh, at addressing the ways in which we create some of these problems. Yeah, I agree with that actually. I th- uh, but uh, that that there is a little bit more complexity that's coming into the picture. Um, but it's interesting to see how it gets sort of shifted out. Like in Ar- you're you're correct that that is true in Argo, but that's actually only in the opening sequence of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's as if the you know it's as if okay we are done with that complexity and now we're just going <laughs> to get into the the regular part of the movie. And in Homeland, the, I think the problem with that I have with shows like Homeland is not so much for what you're describing, which I think is, it has some intelligence to it and has some um, worldliness to it. But it's the fact that the Muslim characters can only be either with the state or terrorists. There's no other option for them. Um, You know, there's no character that can that somehow has another way of thinking about how to be in the world. It's either you're fully aligned with the state and you're part of the CIA infrastructure where there's a couple of people like one character who's like that or you're fully uh, uh, a terrorist or or a potential terrorist. And I just think that that's not you know, I am I'm critical of U.S. foreign policy and I'm not a terrorist. And I think that there's, uh, you know. The vast majority of Muslim uh, Americans that I know occupy that same position, and we don't see ourselves represented in these in these kinds of shows. And Dr. Mansour, I, I assume that's something that you would agree with. And actually, I think uh, in, in his book he even talks about. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a conversation between of all people, Bill Cosby and Katie Couric or something, where, where they, they say, "Well, what what there isn't is the Cosby Show." For Muslims or for Arabic peoples or for Middle Eastern peoples, there isn't um, some kind of depiction, as he was just saying, of people living a life that you would recognize. Well, I think that's that's really important. I think we need to create those narratives, and I think that's that's important here in the state of Connecticut when things were getting out of hand. Uh, part of the reason we started the Muslim Coalition of Connecticut is that we wanted to live our Islam through service. So, serving in soup kitchens, shelters. Uh, and habitat builds, for example, it changes the narrative. Okay, Muslims are here to 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 help. Uh, likewise, being a physician, ten percent of uh, America's physicians are Muslim, uh, despite being one percent of the population. So we're here as healers. And not only is it hurtful to hear the association with terror constantly about Muslims, but you know we're we're here trying to make a difference. Uh, in a positive way. But I agree with you, the narrative, uh, you know, of of a Cosby-type show would be important. Now, there are Muslim comedians that are coming up uh, and who are changing that narrative, but it's taking a while. We're a relatively recent immigrant population, and therefore... You know, it takes a while to get to the level of Bill Cosby. Yeah. Actually, I was watching a Maz Jabrani special last night to get ready for this. And I don't know. He's just sort of Don Rickles the whole thing, you know, in a way that I kind of – I never have seen his stand-up. I was kind of surprised. Uh, I'm not sure it exactly addresses the problems we're going to be talking about here today. Why don't we grab a break here? There's so much more to talk about. This show may fly by very quickly. Our number, 860-275-7266. Uh, we're back. We're talking uh, about the perception and uh, sometimes persecution of Muslims uh, in America. Uh, our guests uh, are Mustafa Bayoumi, a professor of English at Brooklyn uh, College, City University of New York, uh, and the author most recently of This Muslim, Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. With me in the studio uh, is Dr. Reza Mansour. Uh, he is a founding president, uh, the founding president of the Muslim Coalition of Connecticut. Um, 
And so, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the present moment and the present moment politically. And, and Dr. Reza Mansour, let's start with you. Um, you know, as this particular election cycle was unfolding, not that we weren't going to be having conversations about the Middle East, because we were, but we were having conversations about a lot of other stuff. Um, and suddenly, uh, last Friday, it happened, and the conversation shifted, and it does seem as though— and I should pause and say, like, all I ever do is complain about and pick on uh, our governor, Daniel P. Malloy. He's been really great this week, and uh, he's been— uh, a governor we can be really proud of in the way that he's approached the Syrian refugee uh, crisis. So I just I should do a shout out. I mean, I never seen anything nice about him, so I'm saying something nice about him right now. He's uh, been exactly the governor I want to have uh, in a whole bunch of different ways around this issue. But um, but the winds shifted a lot here politically, and and it does seem as though politicians are trying to outdo themselves now. Uh, at least some politicians trying to outdo themselves in saber rattling uh, and Muslim baiting, and we can pick our, our various names for it. I don't know. Just give me your general reaction to this. How how are you processing the present political moment? Yeah, um, it's interesting. It actually didn't start. On Friday, mm-hmm. uh, I, for being in the Muslim community, you feel these spasms of, of fear that come about all of America around the time of the presidential elections, which usually is a two-year period. Uh, and it happened this time as well, where you have special litmus tests if you want to be the president of the United States. Now we have special litmus tests if you want to be a refugee coming to America, which is really un-American, you know. And so the the uh, I think we have to embrace the fact that uh, these refugees have been victimized before, and we have to embrace them as being, how can you victimize them again? You know, these are the refugees that suffered uh, being uh, thrown out of their houses, and many of their family members killed because of ISIS, and now they come here and they're going to be victimized again. So I, I too, also want to make a shout-out not only to Governor Malloy, but to Senators Blumenthal and Murphy, who have also been very supportive of uh, bringing refugees to the state of Connecticut and to the president for Uh, standing up and saying, you know, this is a knee-jerk kind of hysterical reaction to say no refugees just because of of some terror incident that happens uh, in Paris. I think there's a a tendency to to stereotype, and we have to really strongly oppose that kind of uh, stereotyping. Um, And uh, Mustafa Bayoumi, um, you know, he said... um, it didn't start Friday, and obviously he's correct about this. And reading your book, one gets the sense that... Not that it never stopped after September 11th, but that in a way, at a very at a level that was pretty invisible to most of us, um, at the level of, uh, of government machinations, it didn't really stop. I mean, there were things in your book that brought me up short. There's this registration program I personally had never heard of for visitors from other countries. I think it's called NSEERS, uh, the, the E's in the yes. middle stand for uh, exit entry, I think. And, and well, uh, you describe that uh, program because I think you know it way better than I do. I just read about it this morning. Sure. Um, yeah, it began exactly one year following the 9-11, so it's on September 11th of 2002. And it was a, a government program that required the registration of all males coming from 25 Muslim-majority countries uh, and North Korea, which is really a null category since there are no non-immigrant males coming from North Korea to the United States. Uh, and so these these people who are coming into the United States, or if they had already been here in the United States, they had to register their whereabouts with the government, and they had to go through these quite extensive and lengthy interviews. And then um, every time they entered or exited the country as well, they had to do the same thing. Uh, and so it was tremendously burdensome on the community. And it was also, you know, at a time when uh, a lot of people who were in the in the Muslim communities around the country uh, were 
you know, were actually fled. Many of them actually left to Canada at the time. And um, and then there was one of the interesting facts about this program, too, was at, at a certain moment, uh, they were even, the government was registering people who also had Canadian nationality as well as having been born or having nationality from one of these other 25 countries. And Canada issued a rare diplomatic warning against the United States because of this, because they said a Canadian citizenship should be, should be a Canadian citizenship equal for everybody who's Canadian. And this program went on until in, until the Obama administration came in, essentially, and um, and it was uh, it was really something that the impact of which was felt really deeply by the Muslim communities in this country. Uh, I want to talk about sort of you know ways in which um, even though yeah things didn't start on Friday, things one is hearing things these days that one hasn't heard for a while. And um, so I'm actually going to, so there's a guy named Norm Pattis, who's actually a, a, a lawyer who's kind of associated with kind of hyper-liberal car- causes. He's been that sort of ponytailed William Kunstler kind of lawyer here in Connecticut for you know, you know a, a long, long time. He's got a piece in the New Haven Register today, just basically just de- declaring himself, and I'm not, I'm not warping his words really, as kind of a newly minted Islamophobe. Uh, and he says, uh, he writes, there's wax in my ears just now when Muslims of goodwill seek to remind me that Islam is a religion of peace. Don't lecture me about my shortcomings in this dark hour. If you are outraged about the distortions of Islam, then strike out at those who distort it by acts of terror. Telling me to remain calm feels a lot like being fattened before the slaughter. Uh, and he's doing all this in the context of, of also criticizing uh, Governor Malloy and Connecticut's decision to take in uh, Syrian refugees. Uh, and Dr. Mansour, I don't know whether you read that yet or, or not, but um, how do you react when you hear something like that. I actually did read it, and I was pretty shocked. Uh, the The problem is that um, you know it's it's very easy to say I'm an Islamophobe. Um, I'm an Islamophobe. Muslims aren't doing anything about. It. The problem is that we are doing everything that we possibly can in terms of trying to address these issues. I think on every single Muslim organization on their website, you will find a very strong. Um, statement uh, saying that what they did was completely wrong. Now, we've done a lot of interfaith events where we invite the media, and you get responses like, you know, this is not newsworthy, we haven't got a person to cover it at this time, Mm. and then at the same time, where's the moderate voice? Mm. Well, we're speaking as loud as we can. Who's listening? You know, it's it's that. And and people, um, you know, who, who make statements like this, we get concerned because that means that the general, you know, the rhetoric is so loud that even uh, liberal people who are open to other uh, religions and understanding other religions have been, you know, forced to make statements like uh, what he what he does, what Norm Paris does. Uh, it's concerning you know, on multiple levels. Yeah, go ahead. I wonder if I could jump in here, sure. too, because I think it's really important also that we recognize that that's exactly the kind of reaction that groups like ISIS want. They're, they're actually trying to foster a kind of clash of civilizations, a kind of, of cultural war between uh, th- these op- opposing forces. And they're trying to illustrate that Western values are skin deep and that their hypocrisy is actually much greater than their notions of tolerance. And, you know, that's not that's not the United States that I know. And, you know, I, all my work is actually trying to uh, ad- address this issue and trying to say, look, we should be we should be true to our values. Uh, and I think that our values, these bedrock values that are in the United States, you know, are are worthy and 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 honest. Uh, but if if you know, once once there's um, a push towards even more and more intolerance, it's actually going to feed right into the the uh, the ideology and the recruitment strategies of groups like ISIS. 
Um, we're talking about uh, Muslims in, in America, and particularly Muslims in America in the current climate. My number is 860, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We also welcome you to tweet at us, uh, at WNPR Colin. Well, let me just follow that up. Um, I'd like to hear from both, both of you, but I'll stay with you for a second, uh, Mustafa Bayoumi. So I think also a lot of people wonder— and, and and would would want your perspective on the question of I mean one of the things we we read that we know is that um, ISIS is uh, somewhat successful in recruiting uh, people from Europe uh, and uh, in some cases from the United States. Um, if you had to explain to somebody who wouldn't understand that why that would be happening, you know, why would somebody living in the United States want to run off and join something like this? Um, what's your answer? Or, or is that, to your way of thinking, not a germane question? No, I think these are, you know, these are these are very live issues. So I think we have to address them. Uh, I'm not, you know, concerned about that. But I, I think that we uh, we also have to look at them honestly and, like, you know, look, look at the facts. And the facts are that uh, they, the people who are uh, traveling, a small number in the United States, a very small number in the United States, maybe less than 100 people uh, have gone to Syria. We don't know how many for ISIS itself, but uh, uh, less than uh, it's around 100 people who've gone uh, to fight in Syria and um, many more from Europe. And I think that's already indicative of something because the levels of alienation um, and discrimination in Europe of uh, Muslim populations is much higher than it is in the United States, for one thing. The other thing, too, is that these people generally tend to have very little association with organized Muslim communities. There's really no recruitment that's happening in mosques, even though there's all this discussion around mosques in the United States. But in fact, there's no relationship uh, uh, with with mosques and um, um, and ISIS recruitment. If, I mean, if there were, don't you think we would know of some of the mosques in the United States by name and some of the imams by name? But whenever you get this invocation that there's this dangerous threat coming from mosques, it's always this generality instead. And so that's also something that has to be said. And, and a lot of of them tend to be also very pet, petty criminals with delusions of grandeur, um, millenarians who, who think that we're coming to the end of time. I mean, these are basically uh, misfits and, and, and social outcasts who have joined. And there's no way that we that, you know, that um, a small um, or organized Muslim community uh, can be held responsible completely for the actions of people that they have almost no dealings with whatsoever. Um, uh, uh, did you want to amplify it? I do. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, one of the other things is this, uh, this, this us versus them mentality. You know, if you make it a dichotomy, either you're a good American or you're a good Muslim, then people are going to choose. And unfortunately, through the media of what, you know, some parts of especially the right wing media, when they slander Muslims to this degree and say Islam is the problem, then you're going to have youth get, you know, have a sense of a crisis in their identity and they're going to choose, you know, okay, Am I a good Muslim or am I a good American? When there's no, you know, you can be absolutely a good American and a good Muslim. So I think we, the the extremist rhetoric is actually fueling this. So where the right wing says, you know, this is a problem, well, they're actually ratcheting up the fear and causing more of this by, uh, by, by everything that they're doing. So I think we need to ratchet down the the rhetoric and try to try to live together. This is one America. Uh, I usually ask questions rather than have opinions, but this is something I've been thinking about a lot, and I've said it on one other show, so I'll say it here. I had a conversation with somebody last night in which I said this too, which is – so um, my the latest thing that I've been saying to people is, okay, imagine that you don't have any uh, humanitarian basis for uh, for accepting people who aren't like you, that the whole agape thing doesn't work, whatever. Imagine that you just don't care, that all you really care about is the safety of you and of the United States. 
um, why should you look at this refugee crisis any differently? And I have sort of two kind of self-interested um, arguments for this, which I, I, I offer up to people who are struggling with this issue. Well, the first one is uh, people are really worried. If people are really worried about sort of, you know, who's getting recruited, who's already here, um, uh, one of the the best thing to de- to have to deal with that is what's called human intelligence, right? You can't bug everybody, you can't wiretap everybody, but human intelligence is great. That's when you talk to people, you ask them questions. So let sixty five thousand Syrian refugees in here and debrief them as they come in. Just ask them questions. Ask them. I mean, you're going to wind up knowing an awful lot more about the Syrian population in the United States than you do right now. I mean, so at that level, most of these people are coming in, and as has been said, you know, they're fleeing a, a horrible situation. They want this situation to work. Uh, if they know anything that would be useful, it's probably uh, pretty easy to find things out from them on that basis. And the other thing, sort of to Dr. Mansour's point, is you know, the reality of ISIS is th- it, its actual operational capacity is being degraded right now. I mean, the French just they're bombing the crap out of them. Uh, Russia and France and the U.S. are kind of forced into this uh, reluctant alliance where they're starting to share intelligence as they never have before. I mean, they're going to have their own problems and they, they're going to need to replace people that they lose. And it's going to be easier for them in all the ways that Dr. Mansour just said to replace the people that they lose. If we act like jerks, if we, if, if we act like humanitarian, decent people, if we uh, if we're the good guys, uh, if we uh, don't show our, our 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 backs to people in need, it's much harder to make the argument to somebody. Oh, you should join ISIS. You should sympathize with ISIS. Um, you know, I mean, even if you don't care about other people, you should welcome in refugees just to send that message to make it that much more difficult. I mean, that's kind of what you were saying, too. It is. I mean, uh, there is, uh, to answer your question, there is a vetting process. I mean, mm-hmm. Homeland Security, the oh, FBI, yeah. CIA, all of them vet these people. So that's a very good vetting process when they come to the United States. But I'd like to quote just to just to let us understand from a better time on the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Give me your tired, your poor. Give me your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I mean, this this is what America represents to me, you know, where we want to become a vibrant, you know, multicultural society that values everybody and makes this place a a better place for who we bring in. Because these, these immigrants don't come and and live off the state. They become, they work and they work hard and they they give back. I mean, this is what we've seen from immigrants from the Bosnian community, for example, that came into Hartford. They are as vibrant as any community is. So this is what, I mean, these are the lessons we have to learn. Um, let me grab a call from, I don't know, let me have to just check the name. It's Michael in Ashford. Hi, Michael. You're on the air. Hi, um, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. It's it's an observation of mine. And, and it, I've been mulling try, how to say this without sounding like I'm an Islamophobe or, or a racist or something. But I just feel that um, I'm familiar with the Yukon campus. I, I walk on it frequently. And um, I, I my walk, I used to go by the mosque. Um, and they they just are, are very touchy as, as a group generalization in the sense that I think they feel like an embattled minority and and as such they're they're more in people's face about their property, about their parking spaces. And I know two different people who had their cars towed uh when they could park uh in a space owned by the mosque and 
and and it's just sort of um, an embattled paranoia that that I understand or I, that I think is understandable. But I think that in a way it explains why uh, Islam is more um, more a target of hatred than other minority religions or or ethnicities such as. All right, I'm gonna I, yeah, I'm gonna cut you off there. Uh, first of all, obviously, we not don't want to judge an entire world religion by two instances of car towing, but um, you know, in, in a way, there's a there's a point that he's making that might be worth explore, exploring. Let me see if I can sort of reframe it a, a little bit more usefully. So, um, the, I I think well, I, on Monday I was quoting um, Mohammed Gilan. I may be saying his uh, his uh, his last name wrong, but uh, I'm sure he's uh, a thinker known to both of you. In fact, I think uh, he shares some Canadian ties, um, but. He said he he tweeted last year asking me to condemn the obviously un, the obviously condemnable presumes my bad moral my basic moral code is in question. I refuse to take part in this, um, which I thought was a really interesting observation. You know, if you're constantly being if you're a minority who's constantly in, in the U.S. constantly being asked to condemn things that anybody could tell uh, is condemnable um, because you share something with the people who did it. That would wear me down. I would get touchy after a while. Uh, I, I would get, I, 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 my, that would wear me down, the sort of the presumption that I constantly had to renew my bona fides with the society I was living in would, would really bother me. Um, and when I, when I brought that up, um, we were also talking about how at UConn the, there's a more talk about having more diversity training, particularly um, concerning uh, Muslim issues, uh, uh, particularly at, at a time like this. And a guy said, well, isn't that the same thing? You know, if I'm not an Islamophobe, why do I have to go through diversity training? Why is there a presum- presumption that I have bad moral faith? Why does everybody on the UConn campus have to go through diversity training uh, if only a tiny fragment uh, of those people are Islamophobes? And I mean, I have my own answer to that, but but Dr. Mansour, I don't know, you can react to anything that was just <laughs> said. <laughs> so so when you're constantly being uh, you know attacked or even being uh, presumed to be guilty uh, because of some terrorist incidents, you tend to isolate yourself. I mean, going into a sense of a cocoon is not uh, is not not unnatural. However, I think it le- requires a lot of courage to actually come out and be open about your faith and be able to talk about it. And I think the Muslim community in general, uh, at least in Connecticut, have done a really good job trying to reach out. We've recently had a whole series of, of conversations with your neighbor going through all of the different, uh, not all of them, but many different churches in the greater Hartford area. We've had frequent open houses all to try to dialogue. And I think it's important to have the courage to be able to do that. But with 45% having a negative impression of Islam, you know, some, especially youth, may feel intimidated to go out and be able to define themselves and be able to define themselves properly. And sometimes it comes out as being very defensive. And I think that that needs to be understood as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that we have to have the courage to go out and define ourselves and being be part of the conversation. Well, yeah, Muslims wouldn't be the first minority to wind up with a chip on their shoulders because of the way they were treated. I mean, that's pretty much the story, story of minorities uh, in this country and probably elsewhere. After a while, you really get tired uh, of... Uh, of having to deal with that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. Is there, um, uh, Mustafa Bayoumi, another thing you want to say about that? Yeah, sure. I think that um, the notion of diversity training isn't quite the uh, litmus test of whether you ha- are a, 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 have bad moral character, a bad moral character. Uh, mm. 
individually, you know, the way that people are saying, oh, will, you, will you condemn this or not? I mean, I don't, you know, that a diversity training is for a group, I would imagine. And it's mm-hmm. not just, you know, an individual has to go through that. And I think that it's actually uh, probably a good thing because there's uh, shockingly low levels of knowledge about Islam in this country, uh, unfortunately. And um, so I don't think it's a bad thing that people actually you know, learn some ways about probably about the faith itself and its traditions and its history. Um, uh, and, and also just, you know, how to deal, how to live with each other in a multicultural society. I, I know for myself, I actually travel the country and lecture the country. I'm fortunate in that way uh, because of my books. And I can tell you that uh, I spend probably at least half of my lectures you know, still explaining the difference between Arabs and Muslims in this country. And people just, they don't even know what that difference is. And I used to resent it, and now I embrace it because I feel like, you know, somebody has to uh, let people know what that difference is. Um, let me just ask you, um, one of the um, portions of your book has to do with the day uh, you were naturalized. Uh, and so you have dual, at least you did at the time of the book, uh, have dual Canadian and U.S. citizenship. Uh, and there were sort of practical reasons, as you say in the book, for you to want to be naturalized. But um, it's obviously not simply a practical step. It's a, um, uh, a decision you make for other kinds of reasons. Um, why is it important to you to be a U.S. citizen and... And I guess sort of, sort of uh, I mean, a lot of people, I think, sort of listening to the, the U.S. conversation, particularly at a time like this, would think, oh, who wants to be a citizen of this place? If, I mean, if one is a Muslim. So why do you want to be a, a citizen here? What's, what's important to you here? I still believe in, well, I believe in the idea that um, with with a thriving civil society and civil and civic participation that people can make a difference in this country and i think that the bedrock values of this country are definitely worth fighting for and so you know i live here my my life is here my work is here i'm a contributing member to this society uh i want to be recognized as that and and operate from that position as well and so you know i took i took the decision very seriously and uh so my efforts at you know criticism are you could say a criticism out of out of uh love for this country it's an attempt to try to make sure that that we subscribe to the bedrock values that we all share um, it was sort of almost goes back to uh, Dr. Mansour uh, reading the words from the Statue of Liberty. It's, it's a great country. Uh, if we live, live up to everything that we say that it is, and we sometimes struggle to do that. Um, if I may call in, yeah, go. Sure. You know, one of the uh, you know one of my my tasks in in being a leader of the community is I I get to speak with a lot of people who come here from different countries and and who are uh, you know who are. Uh, coming for whatever reason, and I find that the majority of them speak so gratefully about America being open to them and the ability to uh, get a better life for themselves, and always the values of America come up. So I think it's something that we don't do enough of is is say how grateful we are be, to be here, and that's partly because we tend to be in a cocoon because of all the attacks. But I think American Muslims in general are very grateful to be here, want to contribute to society, uh, and as uh, Mustafa said, really va- are very you know, value the values of America. We really do. And so I think that needs to be set clearly as well. That's a great segue into the uh, final segment that we're going to do here. Uh, we'll be talking very specifically about the Muslims in, in Michigan. Um, uh, I, I can see that we're not going to get to have what I wanted to have. I need to have like a 30-minute debate with Mustafa Bayomi about the movie The Siege, which I think he's got wrong somehow. <laughs> but we'll do that on stage somewhere. All right, we'll set that up. Uh, you got it. We'll screen the movie, and then we'll do... Uh, a talk back afterwards. Uh, All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. 
Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Claire Danes. For show pages, articles, and other great stuff, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, The Nose covers Charlie Sheen's announcement and our subtle prejudices about the way people use words. Now, back to Colin. Speaking of the way people use words, um, in Mustafa Bayoumi's book, um, I've I've learned a new word, which I really like a lot, imbricated or imbrication, uh, which uh, he uses in a very interesting way. So uh, we're going to be talking about words tomorrow uh, and lots of other stuff uh, on the news. All right. We're talking uh, about Muslims in America uh, today. Mustafa Bayoumi is here. His book is This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. In studio with us is our good friend, Dr. Reza Mansour, uh, the founding president of the Muslim Coalition of Connecticut. Joining us now uh, by phone is Matt Stifler, uh, and he uh, is a lecturer in the department of American Culture at the University of Michigan and a researcher at the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, Welcome to the conversation, uh, Matthew Stifler. Uh, Thank you, Colin. It's good to be here. So um, let's begin with um, Dearborn. Dearborn has this kind of amazing demographic profile, which unfortunately has entitled itself to uh, death threats and hate speech recently on social media. Uh, But in in general, it's a a much more interesting story than that. Uh, Explain the the concentration of or just describe, first of all, the concentration of Arab Americans in Dearborn. Sure. Uh, so the city of Dearborn is about 100,000 people, and at least uh, 40,000 of those are Arab American, and almost all of them are Muslim, coming from uh, Lebanon, Iraq, Palestine, and Yemen for the most part. Um, and they've been here in Dearborn since the city became a city in the 1920s. Um, and so, um, and, and was it simply because of the automotive industry? I mean, how, how does that? How does that? That's not an enclave. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's much more than that. So, how did that happen? You know, it started, the city of Dearborn Arab American population did start because Henry Ford moved um, a lot of his operations here to the city of Dearborn and opened the Rouge factory in the 1920s. Before that, the Arab uh, Muslim and Arab Christian populations lived um, in and around the city of Detroit and worked in the factories there, but then they, they moved over here, a lot of them, when the Rouge factory opened. And so the population just naturally grew from chain migration and families having more children uh, but really what, what pushed the population to the, the place we have it now was um, uh, refugees and exiles and people fleeing violence in their homelands in Palestine and Lebanon and Yemen in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so most of the people we have in Dearborn today uh, can trace their immigration to leaving uh, horrible situations in their home countries. Um, given all that, and given in particular what you just said, um, Governor Rick Snyder of Michigan was one of the first governors to say that uh, he did not want to accept Syrian refugees. Did that surprise you? And, and, and not to make you speak for an entire state of people, but how big a surprise was it either to the people of Michigan or to the people of Dearborn? Is, is there a way that you can talk about that? Yeah. So it was, to me personally, it was surprising. And I think it caught a lot of the Arab American organizations um, in Dearborn and across the state off guard, considering uh, Governor Snyder has a long history of working uh, for immigration, um, especially to the city of Detroit, and his stance on immigration was actually sort of caused him some flack from his own party here. Um, So we were disappointed, to say the least, that after months and months of working specifically on the Syrian refugee problem, to have him about face so quickly, 
Uh, so that uh, is, we're still kind of reeling from that. Um, uh, well, actually, I mean, this is a good place to bring uh, our other two guests into the conversation. So um, looking at that, uh, Mustafa, Mustafa Bayoumi from afar, um, you know, that's sort of an interesting story he's telling, and a story that I think is probably somewhat familiar to you, that Matthew Stifler has been involved in these lengthy conversations about this uh, with a public official who, therefore, would presumably have his consciousness raised. Uh, and and so to see it flip that quickly in the other direction, I mean, what, what kind of explanation would you impute to that? Well, unfortunately, that's the way that politics is often run these days in this country, and the politics uh, often uh, also premised on fear. And it's made, made, you know, you're basically proving your national security bona fides off of the backs of Muslims who are fleeing uh, terrible circumstances. And so, uh, you know, I think it's tragic. Um, I want to talk very uh, specifically with uh, Reza and Matthew um, and and Mustafa about what does work. Okay, so. Um, uh, first of all, Matthew, it might be interesting to start with you. This, so just the numbers that you stated at the beginning certainly gives an Arab population a chance to in- invent a culture that can tell its own story uh, and that can maybe be uh, what, um, uh, what Mustafa Bayoumi calls a, a war on terror counterculture. Um, so has that happened in Dearborn? Is there a way in which the, the other 60,000 people kind of get it in a way that a lot of other people spread across America don't? Absolutely. I mean, just given the, the long history of the population here, but also because the population um, has completely transformed the city of Dearborn in very positive ways. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, the city of Dearborn was a dying post-industrial kind of city, and today there's hardly an empty storefront. Um, the, the immigrant population not only has uh, rebuilt the city's infrastructure that way, but they reinvested in the city and built new homes and really just made it uh, a growing enclave in an area and in a county that has seen tremendous population loss in the last 10 years. Uh, But more specifically, you know, I work at the Arab American National Museum, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary. And uh, so we were built here in the city of Dearborn um, to to send a message that this community is strong. Um, And we didn't do it just with help from Arab Americans. We did it with help from local officials, state officials, and and, and federal entities and foundations and people that invested in the idea of celebrating this idea that there's an Arab-American uh, community in what is like a quintessentially American city, the city of Henry Ford, the city of the Ford Motor Company. Um, and so it is making a strong statement that um, not only does our community support the work we do here, but that the larger community uh, supports us. I'm keeping in mind that uh, time, unfortunately, is growing very short. Uh, I'm going to ask each of the other two guests um, very quickly. Uh, Mustafa Bayoumi, when you talk about war on terror counterculture, um, what do you mean? Or, or very, very briefly, kind of what works that way? What, what, give some specific examples of, of things that you think tell the story the right way. I think there've been a really there've been a bunch of really great novels for for example there's Ronda Gerard's A Map of Home um there's Mohjakaf's The Girl in the Tangerine Scarf these are really great novels that describe the Muslim American experience and with complexity and nuance there's great poetry by Suhair Hamad there's great comedy by Dino Obeidullah and as you were saying Maz Jabrani you know there's the criticisms that we see on the Daily Show and the Colbert Report when they were on there there is a kind of like opportunity to to talk back to the culture and to and to in, invest and investigate what really 
really what our lives are like in this in this country. And I think it's I think it's tremendously interesting and rich and fun and great to I think everybody should be part uh, taking part in it. All right. Although don't try to tell Maz Jabani's jokes if you're not a Muslim. All right. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Rizaman, so you're probably going to get the last word here, but maybe you can chime in here. What works? What tells the story of Muslims in America effectively? What's an effective counterculture to the rhetoric of the constant war on terror? I think we we need to engage uh, the the general community as much as we can on a faith uh, level, so with interfaith dialogue on a political level, uh, and it means calling out politicians who are using bigotry to, for example, uh, presidential candidates Bush and uh, Cruz who are saying Christians should be allowed. Well, we have to call them out. You know that that's un-American. It's not. Uh, you know, it's not in keeping with the Constitution of the United States, but they are playing on fears and they're playing on the fears of the electorate. And we need to call them out. But also Muslims get involved in politics and uh, be part of the civic uh, movement in America and, and represent yourselves in every way that, that we can. So, you know, one of the nice things that happened with all of what we're doing is that uh, the Supreme Court in 2013 in the state of Connecticut gave the Muslim Coalition of Connecticut the Supreme Day, uh, Supreme uh, the Law Day Award for outreach and education. And and this is what we want to represent. We want to really be there uh, as a voice of moderation, as a voice that you can come to when you have a a question, but a voice that's taken seriously as well. Um, Well, we hope uh, that this show uh, makes some small contribution to the kind of thing we're just talking about here at the end. Thanks very much to uh, Mustafa Bayoumi, his book, uh, This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. Dr. Reza Mansour here in studio, founding president of the Muslim Coalition of Connecticut. Uh, Matthew Stifler, lecturer in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. Thanks especially to Lydia Brown. This show was her idea, and she has produced it fabulously. We'll be back tomorrow with the nose.